Howdy, Tonsilla Files, and welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave, the Tonsilla X-Pod. EscapingTheCave.com, fuck Twitter. Hello, I'm your friendly host, Todd. going to do things a little different today. I'm going to get straight to this. I've got a lot of material. This uh, <laughs> little theme that I thought I was going to start on. Independent thought. Started on the last episode. Haven't listened to that. Probably should go listen to it. As is usually the case with me, it's exploded into a mushroom cloud. I had like a little cap gun here. And here's the thing. When it comes to the herd mentality, groupthink, mobism, individuality, individual thought, how to break out of that, volumes and volumes and volumes could be written on this. This has been a theme of humanity from the beginning. For thousands of years, people have discussed this. It's not something new. This is not something that has just sort of crawled out of the woodwork like a rat to manifest itself and make itself apparent now here in 2020. It's not new. It's been around forever. I've got a lot of material here that I sort of have written out longhand in spurts. And something that I came up with the other day was that uh, human beings, we are the only people, only things, not people. Human beings, we're the only people. We're the only species on this planet capable of examining ourselves. To abstractly think about not only us as individuals, but as a species in the abstract sense. There's this philosophy that we are the universe examining itself. But there is something to that. No other species has the capacity to examine itself. And what if we don't like what we see? This really merits discussion and at least consideration. People are afraid at their core to look too closely at themselves. We have so many defenses put up. The egocentric defenses, the phalanx, that will protect our identity and self-perception from things we do not like to admit or even acknowledge exist. What do we do then? I wonder if this is the core of self-deception, if this is the core of our inability to perceive the world as it actually is, because we cannot handle the reality of not only who and what we are, but the reality of existence itself. If you were to actually force yourself to comprehend the world and the universe as it is, how would that fit? How would that affect your mind, your outlook, your ego, your sense of self? your identity, your sense of purpose in life. We have an infantile sense of our place in the universe. We're children, not even adolescents, in a sense. I may have talked about this in the last episode. I can't remember, but it may be the parable of the Garden of Eden and the truth of knowledge. Ignorance is bliss. And when we were granted this superpower, really is, in a biological sense, this superpower to examine ourselves abstractly. We weren't prepared for that with mortality and this dualistic split in the species, what I've called the God-Devil parable. It's not what I've called it. That's exactly what it is. We are a split species who have a more, much more highly developed and persistent barbaric aspect to us. Because of how we evolved. 
the residue of the ape is still down there. It's, it's not down there. It's right there. I'll, t- I'll talk about this in a bit. But this is, this is just barely covered with this thin sheen, this thin veneer of civilization. And it can easily be scraped away. And not being prepared to handle what we find may be one of the things that prevents us from not only engaging in self-exploration, but actively engaging in an authentic examination of the species as we really are. And how that reflects on society. How that reflects on tribalism and its subcategories like racism, identity politics, all these things. And then, if you examine that, if you examine the, the bald ape for what it is, and you project forward... It's a really troubling thing to think about where we are going, what path we are on. Children do not like to see the boogeyman under the bed. They hide under the covers or they close their eyes when daddy's mad and say, if you don't see me, I'm not here. You can't spank me. I see a lot of that the older I get and the more I examine this. Delusion, self-delusion. This coyote thing that I came up with in 2009 that uh, Jonathan Haidt and his elephant have explained for me. Snap judgments, self-delusions, post hoc rationalizations masquerading as reason. Discourse. Or wash in it. Where can that possibly take us that's good? I challenge thee to show it to me. Anything else on that? Yeah, man, we'll get to that some other time. So I'm going to talk about today what I've called the Ode to the Solitary Man. I wrote this up, in part, six months ago. It's been sitting on this desk for six months. I wrote it longhand. I intended to get to it, but it was one of those things that I knew once I started tinkering around with it, it's going to take some massaging. There's so many tentacles sort of floating off this fish that have to be grappled with. Independent thought sounds great. It sounds fantastic. It sounds noble. Why aren't more people that? Why do so many people proclaim they are? Well, they basically uh, mimic what George Orwell talked about with the gramophone mind. I went into this five years ago. Here's what I came up with. You want to hear it? Check it out. And that factional warfare usually uh, uses another one of Orwell's favorite themes. The idea of the gramophone mind. Simply reciting partisan ideological propaganda, verbatim. As he put it, politics is not the enemy. The enemy is the gramophone mind. It doesn't matter if you like the record that's being played at the moment. I came to this idea long before I came to Orwell. I called it parroting. Just squawking something off and then patting yourself on the back for how smart you are. Plato had an idea, but it's the illusion of wisdom. The gist of that story was that the inventor of writing was trying to sell his invention to a king, and the king was very wise. And what he said was that with writing, memory will fail. Thinking will fail. People will just recite without remembering, without really knowing, providing them with the illusion of wisdom. And this was 2,000 years ago. What do you think's happened with the internet now? It's gone into the heliosphere. It's a pandemic now. People have figured out via technology a way to appear wise, to appear much more educated than they really are. 
The legend of Tamus is something that I have talked about repeatedly on this podcast. It's incredibly interesting to think about. Leads you to Neil Postman, it'll lead you to McLuhan, but the gramophone mind is also part of that because it gives you the illusion of wisdom. You're picking up something from someone else and just parroting it off to whomever you run into. And in your mind, since you've got this, or we, I have to say we, I have to stop with this you thing. Half the time when I say you, I mean we. I hope you understand that by now. But a lot of the time, we just basically start believing our own BS. We can take something off of Google. We can take something off of Wikipedia. Or we can take it from the ideological avatars, the preachers in the pulpit. Take this, recite it, and trick ourselves into thinking that these are our thoughts our wisdom, that we have come up with this genius. And there's also this sort of reciprocal fuckery at play. When you get in your group, when you get into your little tribe, when we get into our groups, we get into our tribe, see, I'm trying, that, that we just let it go. Yeah, go ahead and do that. I do it too. It's cool. See, we're smart. Let's not challenge each other on this. Let's not ask each other too many questions about what we really think about this doctrine that we've just regurgitated like a hairball. Let's just run with it. Because it is righteous. It's a part of our group scripture. It's really interesting to watch that happen. Those group dynamics. The herd mind at play. It's fascinating. But what's the alternative? What is it? That keeps people there. People always proclaim that they love independent people. They love people who will stand up and say what they think against the tide. They always, we love that about people, right? Well, typically, yeah, as long as that's sort of disguising the conformity of the group. People love it when you can stand up, pretend, maybe you'll get up in front of their, I don't know, preacher at the pulpit and pronounce something against him. And you'll stand up and you'll be like, yes, there's an independent thinker right there. But what he's doing, he's basically disguising the conformity of your in-group inside this contrarian display against the other guy. It's the illusion of independence that's disguising and concealing your own group's conformity, which you cannot see. There's a lot of psychology right there, my friends. You cannot see it. You cannot see it because we refuse to see our own group's conformity and bullshit. This is Jacques Alul. This is Bernays. This is Libin. There are so many people that I could point to, and I'm going to get to a few of those today. But this is a common tenet of psychology. That you cannot see your own self-delusion, your own elephantitis, your own post-hoc bullshit for what it is. But, but, oh my God, God forbid some interloper makes his way into your camp and shows you his. Because you'll see that in a microsecond. It's fascinating. Fascinating. And this entire study, this entire course of study is when you think about human beings and who and what we really are, when you get down to the core of us, when you, when you sort of penetrate that titanium shell and you dig into what, who and what we really are, paints a very, very unflattering picture. We like to prop ourselves up as some sort of a, almost a deity species. We're so clever. We're so smart. We're so evolved. We're not animals. We're people. We love to do that. 
But once you start sniffing this trail, that line of reasoning, if you can call it that, starts to fall apart. I'm not the most humble human being in the world. (laughs) Maybe you've noticed. A lot of you have. It's okay. I admit that. But as a species, holy Christ, we need some. I'm going to have a piece, maybe three pieces, dig it into blank slateism eventually. This is a scourge. This is a train of pseudoscience thought that tries to deny human nature. And it's dangerous because if you can deny human nature, then you are free to start shitting anything you want into that suddenly blank skull. Rather than looking at the problem, rather than looking at at the species and us as we really are, it turns into a, a mass denial on par with climate change denial. It's almost a direct parallel because we're running down a road, a really icy mountain road, about to slide off and, you know, just slam our car into some redwoods. Do redwoods grow in the snow? I don't know. I digress. We're about to do that. And denying the human nature that's taking us down this icy mountain road about to crash into a tree is a direct parallel to people who will look for any reason to say climate change isn't real. It's self-denial. It's collective self-denial. In favor, you're looking for favorable information to further promote your ideology. Or maybe just shove yourself into a cocoon. I'm not like that. We're not like that. What you really mean, I'm not like that. Don't get me started on spiritualists. I won't do it. Not today. Why is that? One of the things, one of the reasons that I'm coming up with repeatedly, different sources, observations, all of it, is because of the sapiens need to belong to a group a tribe. We evolved this way. I've said it a hundred times probably by now that we were not meant to live in a society of 350 million people. We evolved to live in groups of about 150 individuals. The need to belong to a group is chiseled into our DNA stone. It's hard not to belong to one tribe or the other. There's a primal magnetism at play here drawing us to one group or the other, and not being included, even feeling self-ostracized from all of those groups makes us incredibly uncomfortable. It makes a person feel naked, alone, and in the face reflected by happy groups, very insecure and very unsure of ourselves. Mill and Emerson got into a lot of this. Bernays even gets into it a little bit. The need for a group. Lippmann. It's universal. We need to belong. We need social validation. We need a sense of higher purpose. I had an idea the other day that sometimes if we don't have that purpose, we will manufacture even an internal threat within our group to give us something to fight for, give us something to fight against, a righteous battle for survival. Our group against that one, the need to belong. It's a big deal. And if a person is committed to truth, and a person wants to attempt to see things as they really are, then the cheap criticisms, the snipes, uh, coming from these mobs, can strike this guy standing apart like a tidal wave, 
unexpectedly. He doesn't see this coming. Why should I care what they think? I stand apart. Well, you know what? Not really. Not 100%. Psychologically, subconsciously, no. You're not quite standing apart. Not fully. I don't know that anybody can fully stand apart from everything without creating their own subgroup, which may be a cult in and of itself, like the Puritans back in, what, 1620. They didn't want to be a part of that. They weren't comfortable in uh, Holland. So let's get our, I don't know, 100 people together, sail across the Atlantic, and create our own little group, a cult, which was exclusionary. It was a puritanical religious cult. That's exactly what we would call it today. But they created their own group because they didn't fit in either England or in the Netherlands. They were not comfortable in either of those two places. They wanted to do things their own way, so they started another group, which turned into us. I don't know that anybody can really, truly, and authentically stand apart from everything. I don't. I've yet to see any proof that they can without having serious psychological maladies. We love to put our criminals in solitary confinement in prison. That is equivalent to psychological capital punishment. A lot of people think that solitary confinement is torture. I tend to agree with them. I do. It's psychological torture because people need to belong. They need to belong to a group. They Even people in prison need to belong to some faction within the penal colony. And to put people away, shove them in a cell where they can't have any human contact, they're not part of anything, is psychologically destructive. That's why they do it. So yeah, the man standing apart, I think, can be hit by this tidal wave. Unexpected tidal wave, something he didn't see coming, but bam. And I think that this can destroy the process of independent thought before it even begins. Because people are not ready for that. There is this misconception in our heads that everybody will respect the independent thinker. No, that's not the case. They will respect it as long as it conceals their conformity. But once it starts reflecting their conformity, they're not going to have any of it. They will behave like the monkeys in the YouTube videos, and they will attack that interloper. It's not unlike the Middle East. If you're a political atheist in 2020, standing apart from both liberal and conservative dogma, you will be attacked by both. If you even attempt to stand up and reflect the conformity of both of those two groups, they will. They will ally themselves just long enough to beat and rape you, the filthy centrist. And beyond that, let's say you can withstand that onslaught, that psychological onslaught, that wave. Let's say you get through there and you you do begin the process of thinking for yourself and, and sort of processing all these things out independently. Let's pretend you've done that. Now you've done your own work. Who checks it for you? Who do you have check your work to make sure that you're not just full of shit running down, you know, some sort of an egocentric path? Who do you have checked that that's trustworthy? How do you get another set of eyes to look at that? Now, presumably, the independent man knows that one doctrine is as fraudulent as the other one, right? Or at least does suspect. So the thought and inseminated opinions emanating from one congregation of the other, it's meaningless. You can't have a missionary from the church come over to your house and talk to you about your atheism. 
you're not going to trust them. They're always coming from a perspective that they're trying to save you. They're trying to rescue you or recruit you. It's Emerson. If I know your sect, I anticipate your argument. You know what they're going to say. You know the point of view and the perspective that they're coming from. It's not independent. It's not authentic. It's all from a position of trying to save you. If I know your stance before you reword and proselytize it, it's masturbation. So the solitary man is left standing virtually alone. Unless he has other people that he trusts who are trying to walk the same path independently, what's he going to do? He's left to seek truth in a sea of agenda, propaganda, disinformation, groupthink, and a hurricane of egocentric post hoc flatulence. Where's it at? Flatulence posing his thought. It's not thought, it's recitation. It's the gramophone being played. Children in cages. MAGA. This isn't just limited to politics, by the way. You can apply this to religion, spirituality. You can apply this to science. Although science at least has some safeguards built in. Presumably, they like that. They like people who think in other ways because they have a process, presumably anyway, where you can check, peer review these ideas, these findings, these theories. But if you're not a scientist and you're not surrounded by people who you know, treasure the scientific method, what are you supposed to do? It's a lonely existence, man. People are not prepared for that. They should be. If you're considering this, if you're even thinking of going down this line, maybe, maybe you've got that fire you just can't ignore that you have to do this. You had better prepare yourself for this because this is brutal. It's a psychological mutation. You're going against evolution. There have always been people who couldn't help it. And they rarely talked about how difficult that is. I mean, we have, I guess, evidence. Is it Copernicus who was sort of excommunicated from the church because he dared say <laughs> that the sun was the center of the solar, whatever it was. But he had a quest. He had a fire to seek out the truth, consequences and dogma, and the prevailing institutions be damned. This is the truth. Damn it. Here. Do your worst. Always been people like that, but they're rare. And this is one of the reasons, I think, why. Because it's brutal. It's almost self-flagellation, self-abuse. The mob, as it stands, is not defective. We have to understand that, my friends. The mob isn't broken. The solitary individual is either the mutant or, perhaps, an attempt at the evolution. I don't know. But he is not normal. The individualist, the solitary uh, man who stands apart from all the packs, from each pack or herd, is not the normal one. Evolution designed human beings to be part of that tribe. It feels good to belong. It feels good to bond into a unifying sense of common purpose, especially, as I said before, when there's a righteous, presumably righteous battle to be fought. I'm doing that in quotes. To be fought against that evil band of interlopers, the threat. The group provides an army of support as well. You're not alone, not just psychologically and intellectually, but there are other people there to fight with you. It insulates its individual cells from self-doubt by its sheer numbers. Look how many people agree with me. I must be right. It relieves them of self-awareness and critical thinking and critically thinking about whether their cause really is Right and just. Emerson, again, 
It's not good enough to think about what's good. You need to ask whether or not it is good. Is your cause actually righteous and just? Gustave Le Bon, H.L. Mencken, Lippmann, Bernays, Alul, McLuhan, on and on. It's the mob mentality. And say it with me now, mobs are inherently stupid. There is no such thing as collective critical thought. None. The herd mentality takes over as the individual egos, identities, and agendas, they fuse into one self-assured but, but impaired organism. The solitary man is the mutant here. He stands apart, and if he chooses to act alone or even express an independent thought, he risks the wrath of not just one but all mobs residing nearby. Megan talked about this as well. It's really convenient to stand aloof from the mob or the herd, but it's dangerous to oppose them. Alul talked about this as well, that the self-assured mob, self-assured by its propaganda, self-assured by the Central Committee, will attack those who stand apart as traitors, traitors to the Scripture, the good word. Most solitary men's spirits die right there in infancy, in the crib. The flame goes out. It's too hard. They weren't expecting it. If you're not steeled and ready for that fight, that can easily happen, and you're just going to join. Oh, well, better to join them than to fight them, I guess. Independent thought can be smothered in the crib just by the simple fear of being cast out and ostracized. Even feeling cast out and ostracized. It can be one of those things you concoct in your own mind. I don't feel part of anything. I don't feel like I belong. I feel like I have been ostracized, even if you haven't. Who's going to sit there and check that for you? (laughs) Sometimes they're mocked, shamed for being distinct as though they were still in middle school. Verbally gang-raped by the frothing, pitchforked beast who, as I said before, will even ally with their ideological or religious enemies long enough to eradicate him. The enemy common to all religion is the heathen and the atheist. Muslims and Christians hate the heathens. They hate the atheists. They hate the savages who don't believe. They must be converted or they must be eradicated. Now, calm down, Christians. You have a bit of a history here. At least the Muslims are up front about it, right? How's your crusade history looking these days, boys? Uh-huh. Nothing infuriates a clone mob like the reflection of their own conformity. With good reason, man. They see themselves on the side of a just and righteous metaphorical God. On some level, they know they've surrendered their intellectual autonomy, completely dependent upon the support and nourishment of their group. Intellectual self-reliance is a completely foreign concept to these folks, but Heights Elephant, though, <laughs> Heights Elephant is strong. It's a brute. And nothing is going to trigger that elephant's wrath like its naked reflection in the mirror. Be careful. Be prepared. Have an elephant gun. I've alluded to this before as well, that no truly great man of any kind has ever been a conformist because conformists follow. That's conformity. They do not lead. See, a conformist can preach and inspire the herd. He can do that, but that is not leadership. It's tending and prodding the flock. A conformist can be charismatic. He can be a charismatic rabble-rouser, sure. But he will always be rousing with a conformist sermon. An inspirational preacher, if you will, and you just did. His charisma is counterfeit. It stems from cleverness rather than the, I guess, the inspiration of independent thought. 
True leadership is seeing something new and hopefully lighting the path to get you there. And all great men have only been able to perceive that, quote, new way out of an iconoclastic rejection of some kind of status quo through original non-conformity. Here's Emerson. A man must consider what a blind man's bluff is this game of conformity. If I know your sect, I anticipate your argument. I hear a preacher announces scripture and know he's proselytizing the church's agenda. I know beforehand that he can't possibly say a new or spontaneous word. I know that with all this ostentation of speaking for the institution, he will, can, do no such thing. He's pledged himself to look at only one side, the permitted side, the conformist side. Not as a man, but as a parish minister. He's an attorney retained to argue a static position, not explore external truth. Most men have bound their eyes with one doctrine or another and attached themselves to one of these communities of opinion, mobs, echo chambers, or another. Conformity makes men not deceptive in just a few ways, authors of only a few lies, but fake in everything. No word is quite true. Their two is not two. Their four is not four. So that every word they say rings hollow and we have no idea where to begin to set them right. You can't. The switch is internal. Meantime, human nature is quick to dress us in the prison uniform of conformity. We become clones of one another, slowly acquiring the same asinine expression. Your conformity explains nothing. I have reworded some of that, but that is Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's from Self-Reliance. I contemporized, not a word, I uh, made the, the language a little more accessible. But the gist is right there. Self-reliance, Ralph Waldo Emerson. If you are even thinking about this path, if you are really thinking about trying to sort of make sure you are, if not standing completely apart, at least able to see the outlines of the zombie mobs, I beg you to go read that pamphlet. Solitary men stand out, especially in ages of great conformity. They're often persecuted for things like heresy, even martyred. But most often, if their mind was true and their commitment to external truth was sufficient, they're ultimately vindicated. I don't know how long it takes, some people, a couple of hundred years. But ultimately, they typically are. In other times, an age was blessed with a man or men whose charisma actually matched his wisdom, perception, insight, and foresight. And this man was able to lead others through the familiar desert to the now uh, cliche promised land. History is littered with ages of great conformity. Pick your own. Pick your favorite if you like. But in my view, none compare to this one. Huh? What do you mean? Technology. It's enabled the propagandist to not only manufacture and inseminate opinion, as I've talked about with Jacques Lul, but maintain it, touch it up, and enforce it at will. Our age of conformity is not unique in that there are competing mobs battling for supremacy. It's happened before. However, never has the power to congregate into such huge homogenous herds. I apologize for the alliteration there. Huge homogenous herds. Maybe you like alliteration. But never has the power to congregate into such huge homogenous herds instantaneously and at will been at our disposal. Never happened. We are writing the playbook here. We are writing the first of its history. The only way to fight this 
is to encourage everyone to at least strive to be independent and solitary men with a capital M, their own man, to think for themselves by first understanding that they're probably not. The trick is getting the elephant's attention and then turning it on the charlatan who's trained it to adore its chains, its blinders. It's heard. I've talked about Plato's cave here. As you probably know, in the allegory, there's a fire. Behind that fire is somebody who makes shapes and projects those shapes onto the wall. And the people sitting in front of the wall, that's how they interpret their reality. That's inside the cave. I have interpreted that in contemporary times to be the warm glow of electronic Jesus in our hands, showing us a chosen version of reality. If you can figure that out, if you can separate enough to be able to see it for what it is, then you can turn all of your efforts toward the guy behind the fire. And then hopefully we can start to see things as at least a, a, close approximate, a closer approximation to what they are. Maybe. It's difficult. Of course it is. John Stuart Mill said it's better to be a human being dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. It's better to be a Socrates dissatisfied than a fool satisfied. Amen. That's so good I'm going to say it again. It's better to be a human being dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. It's better to be a Socrates dissatisfied than a fool satisfied. Again, John Stuart Mill. And there's another one. I'll go back to Emerson again. This is once more from Self-Reliance. He says, there's a time in every man's education when he arrives at the conviction that envy is ignorance, that imitation is suicide, that he must take himself, for better or worse, as his portion, that no kernel of nourishing corn can come to him but through his toil bestowed on that plot of ground which is given to him to till. The power which resides in him is new to nature. And none but he knows what that is which he can do, nor does he know until he's tried. We but half express ourselves and are ashamed of that divine idea which each of us represents. And here's the key part of the quotation. God will not have his work made manifest by cowards. It takes courage to till that soil that's unique to you. But intellectual suicide is the real tragedy here. Meekly surrendering to the propaganda mind crime or surrendering to the herd because it's more comfortable. That is tragic. That is the loss of individualism. That is the crime of conformity. You gotta stand up and till your own soil. There is a repeated theme here to um, sort of see reality or experience things as they are, as real. I put that in quotes as possible. The egocentric wants and beliefs masquerading as should need to be disconnected. Wants and should. The egocentric wants, these beliefs that masquerade as should. You know, the, the moralistic man who wants to ejaculate his morality on the rest of us. They need to be disconnected. I'm not talking about other people here. Your want for a certain outcome has to be disconnected. And your 
moralistic beliefs on how other people should behave, should, in quotes, has to be tempered. You have to get the dog out of the fight. There's some Buddhism in here. The idea of disconnection, detachment from your wants and your possessions, and your beliefs are a possession. They talk about that as one of the main impediments to finding enlightenment or to be able to see the world as it is, to be able to see yourself as you really are, to self-actuate. It's ego. It's an adolescent ego, an adolescent sense of self-perception. Disconnecting, detaching from the outcome, a preferred outcome, your wants, your beliefs, your shoulds. It's essential. It's one of the ideas of meditation, I think. I've never been able to meditate with any real success. I've had a little success with it, but I think meditation, one of the best things it gives you is uh, sort of a, an introspection into monitoring how you think. Monitoring where your thoughts and your mind goes. And then being able to maybe dig a little deeper and try to identify what's triggering these things. Self-awareness. Self-awareness of the, the cognitive processes, the emotional processes. It'll take you to places if you do it. With me, personally, I do this through my writing, through, through stream of consciousness writing, where I don't let my hands stop. So I can dig really deep there. I have to follow my mind with my hand. It's kind of the same idea, except I'm not trying to still my mind. I find that almost impossible to do for longer than 10 seconds. But digging deep into yourself and finding out what your stereotypes are, what your trigger points are, what baggage you're carrying. And then you can start to sort of pull the plugs on these things a little bit. I'm not there yet. I'm not claiming to be enlightened. I'm not claiming to be Tadzilla Buddha. I promise you, I'm not. But I'm familiar with this stuff. I'm familiar with how hard it is. It's humbling. Again, I don't come across as the most humble individual in the world. (laughs) Fair enough. But I've experienced this. You know, I played a clip from five years ago. I could play more. I have it sitting right there. I could play you a tea party rant right now. Where I go into talking like this as I stereotype all them tea baggers. That was humbling when I figured out, well, maybe maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Cost me a lot of, cost me my group. Cost me my tribe. Thank God. (laughs) Thank God. I understand this, I think, I'll presume to say better than most people, better than the vast majority of people, because most of the stuff that I'm talking about here, I'm talking, taking a lot of things from like Emerson and and Bernays and a few other people, but the vast majority of this stuff is organic. It came from me. It came from self-observation. I do know what I'm talking about here. I promise you. And I'm going to say this again. It's hard. Be prepared for that. Even detaching your wants and your attachments to your beliefs and your morals and what other people should be doing, that is a bitch. It is so hard to do that. It goes against the grain. It goes against what we're taught, especially today, where everybody is a man of morals, wanting to you know, impose their morality, their code, upon everyone else. John Stuart Mill is wonderful for this. I'll be getting to a lot more of his stuff when he starts talking about the moral police. I'll start talking about the man of morals versus the man of honor again. I did that in sort of a confusing way the other day, but that's what the man of morals is. He's the zealot. He's the Puritan. And detaching from that's hard. 
person must deactivate the self as much as possible. And that includes either immunizing themselves from or disconnecting from all externally manipulative sources which manufacture and exploit attachments. We are swimming and drowning in this. It's part of the data overload. It's part of the advertising industrial complex, the political propaganda industrial complex. They are trying to do the opposite of what meditation tries to accomplish. They are trying to fuse you to their product or their agenda. They're trying to fuse your sense of identity, your beliefs. They're trying to inflame all of that and fuse their product, be it ideological or traditional, to your identity and who you think you are. This is the, I mentioned that book, Love Marks, the other day. Oh my God, I opened it. Holy shit. That's exactly what they're trying to do. It's psychological fuckery. Let's make these people identify with a Subaru and tied. Liberalism, conservatism, Trumpism, AOC, Daenerys, social justice, all of it. They are trying to make you live it, to make you feel like it is a part of you. It is not. It is not. None of it is. That is not any more a part of you than the Subaru. And once you can figure that out, once you understand that, then maybe maybe it's a little easier to sort of pull back from it. Don't identify with this shit. Get it away from me. Get your hooch away from me. I don't drink anymore. All that stuff is Edward Bernays, man. I have a a complicated relationship with Mr. Bernays. I've started to read a lot more of his stuff. He was supposed to be the villain in this narrative. (laughs) And he still is, in a lot of ways. But the more I read him, the more his stuff makes sense. This is complicated. I'm not going to go too far down this road today. But he is the guy who figured out, he's uh, Freud's nephew? Yeah, Sigmund Freud's nephew is Edward Bernays. He had access to one of the most influential psychologists or psychiatrists, however you want to look at him, in the 20th century. He understood psychological implications and how to, how to manipulate and exploit it. He saw what happened in World War I to talk the American public into going into war, a war they wanted no part of. He saw what happened, and he figured out, hey, if you can do that, and drag people into war, you sure as hell can drag them into the marketplace with this stuff, right? That was his evil genius. was applying psychological techniques to not only advertising, but also moving that into the political field as well. There were still aspects of this, sure, but they didn't really ever apply naked psychology to it, to the degree that he figured out how to. Century of the Self, it's pretty good. His book's If you can read them, if you can read them as a textbook, as sort of a behind-the-scenes of how things operate, how things function, how you function, how we function, they're invaluable. I'll give you an example. This is from Crystallizing Public Opinion. He says that psychologists have defined for the Public Relations Council, that's what he called himself, his organization back then, propagandists and advertisers, Psychologists have defined for the Public Relations Council the fundamental equipment for the individual mind and its relation to group reactions. This was 1923. It's exploiting attachments. It's exploiting the herd mentality, the mob. The need to be part of a group. The the, the need to feel like you belong. You're attached to a group. 
And this was 1923. Jacques Ellul, a lot of the material that I was covering a year ago, will get back to at some point, I hope, if, soon. <laughs> I've been saying that for six months, haven't I? But that expanded into the 50s and 60s. And this was before, again, all this technology, all this constantly connected technology where they can get to you or someone can get to you at will if you have these applications on your phone via social media. Get those things off your phone. It's the most important thing you can do. If you've got a Facebook or Twitter app on your phone, get it the fuck off of there. You can still use Facebook and Twitter on your computer. You don't need to have that little device buzzing in your pocket every 10 seconds. Might feel a little naked, but it's going to do you a lot of good. I promise you that. Money back guarantee. You'll get your subscription fee back if I'm wrong. Ah. <sighs> Yeah, not only Bernays, though, it's Tocqueville talking about disconnecting. John Stuart Mill, it's identity politics as well. Narratives, whatever psychologically tethers you to your funhouse mirror of an egocentrically chosen perspective and distorted personal truth. And what is also needed is taking a skeptical attitude toward what you may already believe, but without simply rejecting it in favor of something else. Don't trade in the Subaru and get a Honda. Questioning your own internal cliches and stereotypes. I saw a great example of that from a friend today. He didn't even realize he was doing it. One of the smartest motherfuckers I know. And yet out of his mouth came a stream of cliches that I would love to figure out where he's getting them, where he got them. How they identify with who he thinks he is. It was a sight to behold, and yes, I know I've done that. I probably still do from time to time. See, none of us are immune to this. It's insidious, isn't it? Questioning your own internal cliches and stereotypes. That's hard. Also asking where they've come from. Even harder. Running a perceptual virus scan on your mind. Defragmenting it. And then erecting a firewall. So you can control the files on your squishy gray hard drive at least for the most part, and be aware when one's corrupt. I think that's the important thing. You may still get the malware, right? But understand it's there, so you can quarantine and eradicate it. These intellectual Trojan horses, as I just said, we're not immune to this. And with so much data, as much data as we are pounded with, every minute of every day, they're always going to be there, waiting in the wings like ideological pop-up ads. They're cognitive malware. That's exactly what they are. Think about this. We are adamant and vigilant about protecting our machines from cyber attacks, right? Yet we seem indifferent to the assaults on our minds. I implore you, my friends, Toddzilla File, faithful listener, run the virus scan and see what's in there. So, this was fun. I got through a third of what I thought I was going to do today. <laughs> Stuff always takes a lot longer. It's good, though. I'm happy with that, so I've got a few more episodes already lined up, ready to go. We'll get to those uh, hopefully soon. In fact, I could probably sit down maybe tonight or tomorrow and get another one of these out. Not always the case. I work hard at this podcast. I hope you appreciate that. Oh, by the way, no witnesses in the impeachment trial. Apparently he's going to be acquitted Wednesday. 
Don't care. I'm more concerned about what happens afterwards. Foregone conclusion, anyway. EscapingTheCave.com. That's my website. All together now, one, two, three. Fuck. Twitter. And Facebook, too. No page. I'm a freak. Till next time, so long. <laughs>